We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. All right, folks, welcome to the Eight Black Hands podcast. Let's get ready to blast off. Hey, we got a special guest with us. We got Brianna uh, Joy Gray. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, before we introduce you like the real way, a wrap around uh, to find out how everybody's doing. Charles, what's happening, buddy? Nothing much, man. Just a little tired, but good, man. Getting ready for the week. Uh, just ready to work, man. And, and, and excited for our guest tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, Dashiki uh, guy. <laughs> what's Sharif happening? Dashiki Elmeki. Well, we can't hear you, bro. I can't hear you. He said this great man. Yeah, you missed it. Like Verizon. Now I got to give you the. I got to give you the the plan B part. Plan A was too hot for y'all. You know what I'm saying? All right. No, doing doing well. I'm in my comfortable formal attire. You know, and I'm doing well out here in West Philly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm saying. Spell it. I, I will later for you, bro. I will later. <laughs> <laughs> Breezy, what's up, man? I'm good. I'm still trying to make sense of the election, of what it means, of what we're supposed to do now, our next steps. And I'm starting to get very, very nervous every hour of every day about staffing of the next administration, about who is going to get what positions. And I'm on edge. I just want to be real about it. And I'm, I'm very much on edge about it. So other than that, I'm good, man. That's what's up, man. Happy to hear that. All right. Um. So, uh, <laughs> he's happy to hear you're on edge. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm. I'm, I'm happy. Did you see? Like, no, like, like, that's people good. You're great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's not all right. Whatever. Yeah. Anyways, uh, uh, we got a, a American uh, political commentator, a lawyer, political consultant who serves as the national press secretary for Bernie Sanders' two 2020 uh, presidential mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, prior to the campaign, Ms. Gray was a contributing editor for Current Affairs, as well as a senior po- politics editor for The Intercept. So, everybody, let's give a welcome to Miss Brianna Joy Gray. The one and only. Welcome. The infamous. Yes, the one and one. One and only. <laughs> she, she, she's she's yes. quite infamous. Oh, dear. I would also like to say that Brianna hosts a podcast called The Bad Faith Podcast that everybody should Google right now. Google it. Find it. Um, start listening to it and bring information back to us about it, whether you agree with it or don't agree with it or whatnot. Um, hear her out. Um, also, you will find uh, good pieces about uh, Brianna and, and Jacobin. Um, and intercept multiple other places that will definitely challenge you. And definitely for our our audience, I know you will be challenged by some of what you will read, what you will hear, and it's good for us to be challenged. So that's my addition to the bio. Well, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Um, Yeah, we are really proud of this podcast. We just uh, recorded or releasing episode 20 tomorrow, so we're still fairly new, but we've had some great guests. Last week, we interviewed Killer Mike, and he said it was one of the best interviews he's done all year. Uh, We had Ice Cube on a viral episode with Noam Chomsky, Mary Williamson, um, Andrew Yang, uh, Michael Moore. We've had some really great people come on so far, so I hope hope you guys... uh, Tune in and tell us what you think. Mm-hmm. 
Brianna, you caught hell for the Noam Chomsky interview. <laughs> I was watching that. I, I popped some popcorn and just watched it on Twitter. You caught real hell for that that interview. What's the fallout? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it. I you know, I was grateful that it brought a lot of attention to the podcast. That was our episode 10. So we were still fairly new and doing well, but you know, what did they say? No, no press. There's no such thing as bad press. Mm. I mean, what was interesting to me is that most of the frustration or most of the um, ire that came our way came from my co-hosts kind of trolling tweet and not the substance of the interview, which was very respectful. And, um, I, you know, it, it, it was very, I won't say unremarkable, but it, it was it was remarkable for what Chomsky didn't say and what com- a conversation didn't get to, as opposed to any kind of contentiousness in the context of the interview. I mean, I think that like a lot of people on the left, I and my coast have a great deal of respect for Noam Chomsky. That's why we wanted to have him on and ask him really important questions. And what was most the most revealing thing to me about the interview is how there is this subset of the left. Um, not everyone, but there is definitely a subset of the left, left that is really not ready to hear uh, Black people raising the complaint that being told to vote for Democrats every year uh, for the last 60 years or so hasn't nerd to our benefit because we have no political leverage and simply asking the question of what we can do about that. What, we can, what can we do to get as much attention as other groups do whose votes aren't so guaranteed, um, raise a lot of people's heckles. I think Democrats recognize that they can't win without us, but they also seem to be unwilling to do things to earn that vote share. You open to any constructive feedback from what I saw? Uh, sure. Did you, did you ever okay. listen to the episode? I did. The interview? I did. I Great. did. Because first of all, I caught, you know, it, it was messy on Twitter. So that catches my eye right away. Like there was just a little bit of drama about it. Um, I think everything that you just said is true about what I saw in the in the conversation. But the way that it got chopped up and then put on Twitter, the way that people read it, it looked like just a generational difference. Um, Noam Chomsky has been around for a long time, but he was um, he definitely speaks like an elder. Um, and you are very sharp. <laughs> and, and I think it, that, that just that watching that dynamic between, between the two of you was all style. It wasn't really, there, there was no problem with actually what you guys were actually talking about. If I had actually turned it off and just listened to it and not watched it probably wouldn't have got it much on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I respect that, um, perspective, you know, I think most people on Twitter, again, didn't listen to the interview. Um, they listened to the clips on Twitter and what you discover when you listen to the interview is that we spent a lot of time asking him very thoughtful questions, being very patient, asking follow-ups and what was so difficult. And, you know, frankly, I felt, I don't know that I would characterize his response as not sharp. I mean, he's an individual, he's allowed to get frustrated in the course of a debate like anybody else. But when I ask a question and, you know, a very specific pointed question that says, look, pretend everyone here is going to vote for Joe Biden. Let's just assume that everyone has agreed that the thing we have to do is to get Trump out of office and vote for Joe Biden. What can we do to help voters, particularly lower income voters and voters of color, who are very frustrated as being told to put their immediate exigent issues on the side to say what we got to do is to hold your nose and save save America from these white voters Um, and in doing so ignore the real 
things that you need and want to demand for your community, but are being told that you shouldn't raise right now because there's a climate threat. There's all these other kinds of threats. What can we do so that three or four years from now, these communities aren't in the exact same position as being asked to trade off their own personal needs for the broader needs of the nation? I think that's a pretty specific question that was asked very specifically in a lot of different ways. And the response that we got repeatedly was, that's not the question that arises. All you have to do is vote on November 3rd, stand in line for 10 minutes. It only takes 10 minutes to vote. And he gave that identical answer over and over and over again. And over the course of the interview, um, you know, some people said, well, stop asking him the question. But to me, that is the fundamental question of the moment. It's how do we prevent the lesser of two evilism from happening again and again, because I believe it's that kind of um, strategy. It's saying to voters, you got to just vote for lesser evil instead of giving them something positive and affirmative to vote for. That's how we got Donald Trump. And that's how we got to a place where people have so little faith in the Democratic Party. And now we have people from a lot of groups that have historically been very wedded to Democrats, um, peeling away at uh, historical numbers. Hmm. Hey, Charles, jump in here, man. I actually didn't have much to add on this part. I, I, I was just listening uh, and interested on, on the take. Um, my stuff is more around we get around the education stuff. But I, I will say I, I do admire um, I admire that you stick to your guns. I, I, you know, even in the face of when, you know, when you double down, when Bernie went for uh, our, our, the president elect and you were like, no, I'm still not. I'm still not endorsing Joe Biden. And then he kind of distanced himself or whatnot. But you were like, you know, a lot of people would have got frazzled and upset. And you were just like, nah, it's all love. I got love for dude, but this is what I'm doing. So and I also think that we just need more people that speak their mind. It's not afraid to disagree. I think that this is the time in this country where we have to go from people disagreeing with you on certain logical points from them being the devil and somebody else being an angel to like, no, nah, people just have disagreements and we need to actually talk to them. So I just wanted to give you a shout out. On that part, I, I was going to show you that love later, but I I, I can start my little. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't have a question on this particular part, though. Really? I, I, I did have yeah one follow up, Brianna. Do you think you would have answered differently or and uh, and this is hypothetical, obviously, but the day after. Right. Like, what, did you get a sense that it was more or less like uh, trying to make sure that nobody was discouraged from voting and that the next day it would, you know, Hey, let's jump into that conversation. Or is it more or less like, Hey, vote Democrat the rest of your life and, uh, and just be done with Mm -hmm. it. That's a really good question. And I'm not sure what the answer is because in my mind, basically saying explicitly, okay, you know, all the viewers know very clearly that you believe that we should all vote for Biden. Let's pretend that everyone, you know, let's, for the sake of this conversation, so that everyone agrees with you. I even think I said at one point during the Mm. conversation, imagine this is after the election. Mm. What can we do? And I very Mm. clearly framed it. What do we do so that in 2023, 2024, we're not supposed to, let's let's not talk about 2020 at all. Let's talk about 2023, 2024, because we can all kind of anticipate what's going to happen, right? I asked him specifically, you know, it might be, you know, Joe Biden part two, who is going to have the same concerns that we've been having about Joe Biden this whole time, right? That he has not been, um, he hasn't moved, been moved an inch by the largest mass protest in the streets in American history on the issue of criminal justice or any of these other issues that people are protesting around. It's, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, right? The legs of which we haven't seen in a century. And he's saying that even if Medicare for all were to pass the House and Senate, he would veto it, you know? Where, what do we do? Like black, black Americans support Medicare for all more than any other racial group in the country. The movement for black lives has 
universal health care, um, free college as part of their um, platform, right? And despite all of this protesting in the street, Biden didn't move. So it's cut forward to three or four years from now. How do we make sure we're not in this exact same situation? And to me, that is a manifestly different question than should people vote um, in 2020, you know? And I would like to think that maybe we could have a different conversation now, but given the, the lengths we went to to frame it, to take the stakes of this election off the table, mm-hmm. um, I'm not enormously confident about it, but I would, be, I would be thrilled to have another opportunity to have that conversation with him if he were willing. Mm-hmm. But we are past now, so that's all over with. We now have a president-elect in the mind of almost everyone except for a handful of Trump supporters. Um, there's a few kind of renegade folks. He said he won. He just cheated. He said he won. So, so what, there's a small segment of people who have not gotten their email yet, but apparently for the rest of the world, we have a president-elect. We are starting to see positions filled. On this podcast and on, on this broadcast, we concern ourselves with the 8 million Black children in the United States who we believe are not getting a a decent education. We believe that they are walking in the classrooms every day. I say it constantly. So people here have heard this from me. They're walking in classrooms that weren't built for them, that um, are not stocked for them and aren't going to help them reach their highest potential in any way, shape or form. We can predict that because we have the numbers year after year after year to tell us that that's what's going on. Yeah. And right now we have a president elect who said, black people, you helped us do it. You clinched this for us. And he's about to pick an education secretary and that the choice for education secretary in my mind and in the mind of many people should be very broad. They should serve all children of the United States. But what we see, and this might be something for you to pick up on because, you know, you are very labor aligned. What we see is the teachers unions, national teachers unions are going to have an outsized undemocratic say in the way education policy should go with this particular administration. And that's a problem. Um, What do you think black folks should do with a president who said I won because of y'all? who has 8 million black children in this country who have not been served and has many parents wanting options and he's choosing people to run policy, they're going to stomp out many of the options that black families want. Uh, Do you know who, who has been floated? I'm not familiar actually with who's been floated as his, uh, uh, (laughs) one of the ones is Randy Weingarten. Uh, the uh, head of the American Federation of Teachers, Lily, who was the former head of the National Education Association. Um, Linda Darling Hammond is running the process now, but there are all uh, all the people that are from that side of fence are labor aligned or Randy aligned. Uh, and, and that's concerning just because of the type of policies that they normally shoot down. That's really concerning for I think it should be concerning for most black families that that we don't have a say in who should be at that at such an important uh, post. What type of I, I don't pretend to have any expertise in education. And, you know, I, I, I made that note. Uh, before coming on here. So I don't want to speak out of turn. And I certainly don't think that I have an, an enormous amount to contribute here, but I'm curious to know what your concerns are. Well, let me just say this, because we can have very specific education concerns, but one of the concerns that I would have, and I don't know, you know, Charles, uh, El Mackey, when you guys jump in, if you want to augment what I'm saying, but I have a, a concern with the process right now of like how these things take place. What's the broad democratic way of involving the very people that you said you you have won with in some of your major decisions, like a choice like this? Because it seems like so much is going to happen behind closed doors. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that <laughs> the Biden administration is as advertised. Uh, the choices. There has been no part of this. Pro- I mean, there, there's there's two things here, right? There's the idea that maybe if he had a black person at the table, that the outcomes would be different. That I'm and I'm not particularly confident that that is how things work. Right. Right. right? Like, right. so I don't I don't know if, if, if the ask here is that there are black names being floated. I would say that that wouldn't mean very much one way or the other to me. And I'm a little unclear about what the substantive issues are that you will think aren't being heard or aren't being reflected in the administration's choices. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I, that's why I'm hesitating to, to weigh in. Is okay. it, can I take, a, can I take a, sure. a, a stab at it? So, so basically um, this is the, so actually Joe Biden's pick in this process of trying to find his education of uh, his secretary of education is kind of what Biden, what, what, um, what Bernie Sanders wanted to do. Uh, Bernie Sanders has had a statement saying, basically, he stands with the AFT. Uh, he stands with the unions around how schools should be ran. So Biden has started mm-hmm. to float some names of people that run the unions. And there's been a bit of a bit of pushback. And I think that there's a few different questions and we can just without the details there. I think philosophically, we can have a discussion about it. Right. Um, how does somebody that's like, you know, I'm a pro labor person but not at the expense of children in education when we also have a track record of saying, hey, teaching has been a white female uh, organization for a long time since desegregation and black kids have been getting the low end of that stick for the longest amount of time, right? So as a black person in education, my thing is, look, I'm not trying to be against labor, but I do want somebody that sees all kids and not demonizing charter kids and parents or whatever the case is. Uh, And I think the other thing is, is that these are these are people that's making these decisions that haven't had to send their kids to certain type of schools, wouldn't send their kids to certain type of schools. And even though they rail and talk about the public, the public, the public so much, Bernie, Biden, whomever sent their kids to, you know, private schools or whatnot. So I think on a philosophical level, how is there a place for me as a Democrat talking to you as, as, as a leader of this tent as an independent, but has a lot of influence now in the Democratic Party? But I don't vibe with this one part around the education piece. How do I fit in there? I don't know. I'm surprised. I haven't, I don't know very much about Joe Biden's education agenda. I am surprised Mm. to hear that he's opposed to charter schools. It was my, you know. Well, Biden Biden didn't say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Biden didn't say that. But what I'm saying, the the Biden-Bernie connection is that Biden had to have a plan to grab in Bernie people. So one of his things is, I know for sure, if I get a union leader person, like that's straight out of what Bernie's plan on education was. And if, if I if you all need me to later, I can. Re- it's like two paragraphs. I can read it later he, if you want to know. Yo, trust. He's on record as saying that he's against charter schools. Biden, yeah, Biden, Biden he'll close the for profit. Yeah, Biden said he'll close the for profit uh, off from getting any federal money. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. one group. But now he has a staffer that has come out to say basically that for nonprofit charters that he would um, he would go after them too. And, and there'll probably be a lot fewer of them if the way that he's planning things go through. But again, back to process, he had an education advisory committee table set up. That was part of the unity table that was set up with him and Bernie. So a lot of those people came over from Bernie to, to advise on education. It was Bernie heavy at, at that table. So what Biden, when you just said, which was really interesting, you said, I'm really surprised that Biden would be the one that would be against charter schools right. because Obama Biden was all about yeah, like that reform stuff. You remember that, right? Yeah, so like they were all about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you're right to say, wow, I'm kind of surprised that it's that's 
And it's more than it. It feels a little transactional, doesn't it? For, well, okay, a politician being accused of being transactional. That's cute. But I mean, like, listen, um, he has done kind of a left turn or, well, yeah, basically a very left turn on this specific issue. And it's important, I think, to black families. Mm -hmm. So I I guess the question is, Brianna, what's, what's your take on school choice? Uh, again, I, I'm a childless person who, frankly, is kind of uh, dabbling in this. So I don't I don't I would really hate to wait. My understanding, though, I I really I understand that there's a lot of people who are very frustrated, a lot of people who don't have access to ch- charter schools, people whose children um, don't qualify for various reasons in the whole structure of a charter school is that obviously everybody can't go or it would be the public school. And there are concerns. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go. I mean, I would, somebody else. Go ahead. I, I don't want to take up the space. You go, I want you to finish. I'm sorry. Well, the concern is that um, for a long time, charter schools and the availability of charter schools have been used as a wedge issue to, um, you know, argue against the funding needs of public schools and come at the expense taking money out of the public school system. And if they didn't, I don't think that anybody would have a problem with the hypothetical existence of charter schools. But in a country that has such an unequal public schooling system that whose inequalities are largely driven by historically racial animus. And so we see, you know, uh, the fact that our housing is so segregated, not randomly, but because of government intervention and red, redlining, that our schools today are as segregated as they were in the 1960s. Um, and that the fact that property taxes fund education means that people who are lower income have a lower quality of education, that that has become that, that priority and resolving those inequities is sometimes deprioritized by those who would offer a a way out for the the 10% of the populations that are being sequestered there. And so the question I think isn't, you know, an, an attack on charter schools or to minimize the extent to which, every parent is going to try to do the best that they can in their circumstances. And if they can find a way out, everyone's going to take that way out. It's to ask the fundamental question about why it is that so many people, for so many people, a charter school is kind of the last possible off-ramp for a really disastrous outcome for their child in a public school. And I don't think that those things have to be as oppositional as sometimes they're framed. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask a quick question. You know, when you were press secretary for the Bernie campaign, how did you see this issue come up? Um, I mean, you you definitely saw a lot of economic issues come up, mm-hmm. things around like adult issues, jobs, housing, um, the minimum wage, definitely uh, universal. Well, you didn't call it universal health care. You, you guys wanted Medicare for all. But those issues were pretty dominant and adult issues always are. But in education, it seemed like there was a heavy focus on on higher ed. On yeah, sure that, you it, know, it was that, frustrating. Yes. I remember there being a, the debate in particular where Kamala Harris um, and Joe Biden had that exchange. The you know that little girl was me exchange. I remember that was the first time that um, primary education had been brought up in a debate, and mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. brought up substantively. It was brought up as that you know effort to hit each other. You know, on these mm-hmm. kind of personal issues. Not that they aren't don't have you know broader societal implications, but it became totally personalized. And I remember having a conversation afterward that it would be wonderful to talk about some aspects. I'm sorry, I don't remember all the 
I'm not, I haven't worked for Bernie and <laughs> going on a year now, so I don't remember every detail of his plan, but I remember, you know, part of why we did get the teachers union endorsement was because we believe that no teacher should earn less than $60,000 a year. And that there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, universal pre-K and other aspects of the plan that just got no airtime. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, given how much uh, a lot of Bernie's detractors accused him of not caring about various constituencies. And so the stuff was there, but honestly, I was so rarely asked about it that it's not one of the things, it's not one of the stats that rolls off my tongue as easily as some other things. Nobody, nobody cared. And the debate moderators didn't care. And newscasters didn't care. And it, I, I agree that it's an issue. Yeah, it didn't come up much. Ray, what were you going to say? I, I was just going to I was going to add that uh, charter schools are public schools. So in, any school that gets public funding is a public school. And so the unions, big labor, probably wouldn't have some. Oh, you froze. He froze. He's about to say the unions union wouldn't run. have. If, if, if these teachers, if these teachers were giving yeah, you, you, you froze, Ray. No, you you were froze, Ray. So Chris was Chris, Chris was just bringing you back. Yeah, Chris Chris was just catching everybody. Yeah, in. I mean, you were basically saying, Ray, that no one would really have a problem with charter schools if they were unionized, basically, because they are public schools by definition and by law. They are public schools, and the reason that you don't hear as much animus around like magnet schools, for instance, which do, by the way, cream um, students, which do um, take money from regular district schools and neighborhood schools, which do in some states actually admit students on the basis of race like Connecticut can actually turn you away for being black Um, but you don't hear that same type of energy around um, magnet schools and this is where we get frustrated people Mm. at the highest level running for president actually oftentimes don't know very much about k-12 education and instead of being the great equalizer it's actually one of the greatest sorting machines that puts people in poverty afterwards kids are literally sorted in k-12 education into classes of which will stick with them for the rest of their lives and what you just said uh brianna is so true in this last last series of debates Hmm. you almost would have thought that there was no such thing as a k-12 public school Um, children (laughs) with children. Yeah. Like, I mean, I wondered what the children agenda was. What was the child justice agenda? And I think the answer was, well, we're going to take care of their parents. We'll take care of their parents and then they'll be good. We'll make sure that they have good jobs, health care. Anyways. Yeah. So it just it feels like that is the reason why I keep going back to what's the process of getting grassroots people involved in these major campaigns. And then once they become president, how you get grassroots people involved in their decision making, because there will be too many blind spots. Sorry, real quick. Reef, jump in here, man. I heard you. Yeah, no, I want to hear the, hear this answer though about the grassroots. Then I, I'll do I was just going to ask answer that it was a good it was a good question. I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to it. Okay, <laughs> I, I mean, so, I mean, I, th- I think that leads you need into to do that. That's why I asked it. <laughs> yeah, no good into, answer. Yeah, I mean, it's like how do we do it? Because particularly when you know all the all the campaigns talk about centering, you know, communities and being responsive and things like that. You know, earlier we earlier uh, this month, we talked about uh, Malcolm X's uh, ballot or the bullet. Um, and, you know, we just were going through it with our with our audience. And it was just seemed like he could have written that, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so you also brought up this idea of 
you know, the parties, right? Like these two parties and things like that. And what you were asking, um, you know, Noam. So like, how would communities, uh, and we had this this debate, like, you know, do you start uh, a third party or do you continue with what's what's there? Like how long or how actionable is it for, you know, particularly whoever feels ignored, but particularly black people, like what would that look like? So I've been asking this question since the spring and I've been very reluctant. It's taken me many months to come around to offering my own potential prescription because I'm, I'm not an organizer. I don't have that kind of a background and I am, I'm, I'm wary of stepping out of turn, but as I've asked and asked the question and not received the kinds of answers I would have liked or any answer really at all, I've become more confident in offering up some suggestions. So here are those suggestions. And I am I'm very open to being told. You heard it here first on the eight black hands. All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it seems very obvious to me that if you are going to vote for a political party, no matter what they do or say, because they're better than the other political party, that party has absolutely no reason to listen to what you say ever. That seems to me to be as obvious as the nose on my face, right? Um, what the pushback is from um, arguments around withholding your vote, it, it's always, well, if you just choose not to vote for them, it doesn't register as a political choice, right? Nobody is, you know, non-voters don't have power. And I'm like, yeah, non-voters don't have power, people who historically don't vote. But if you are part of a voting block as large, integral, and concentrated as Black votes, right, as uniform as Black votes, if the Democratic Party knows very well it cannot win without Black voters. Mm-hmm. And if, if Black voters, particularly on a local level, let's say if Black voters in, and this is going to upset people because this is an upcoming election, but if Black voters in Georgia said, we were, are going to work our tails off to turn out people the way that we've been doing. You know, we want Biden in the state and we think that we can get him at least one of these two Senate seats. But we will only do so if insert popular program that black people want. Right. I'm not. And this is this is a key piece, because so often people look with, you know, askance at these kinds of arguments because they think, well, you're what you're going to bring the whole party down just because of your personal desires. You're like your your niche needs. Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. the whole the whole gist, the whole frustration of this electoral cycle, the whole frustration of American politics broadly is that majorities of Americans support these kinds of policies that we all want, but neither party leadership is willing to give us. So we have 88% of Democrats supporting Medicare for all and two thirds of Americans overall. And it's peaking, it's going up because of the pandemic in which 12 million Americans have lost their employer-based Health insurance, right? This was the argument Bernie was making all along, and a bunch of bad faith actors like Pete Buttigieg were arguing, no, 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 people love their employer-based insurance. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Americans, on average, have 12 jobs before they're 60, and each time you change jobs, it's an opportunity for you to be between jobs and lose the insurance that you loved. If you want real stability in your health insurance, it cannot be linked to employment. And in the context of this pandemic, when again, 12 million Americans have just lost their employer-based health care, it's become obvious to many who are gaslighted during the primary how unstable that situation is, right? You have overwhelming majorities of Americans, I think it's in the 70s, I, at least two-thirds of Americans supporting uh, marijuana legalization, something that Joe Biden does not support, but which won a, num- a number of ba- uh, ballot initiatives over the course of the this past election, right? Obviously, you know, $15 minimum wage is part of, 
of Biden's platform. So we'll skip that. But it's worth noting that in Florida, where Biden lost, the $15 minimum wage won. And in Florida, the Florida Democratic Party made the choice to distance itself from a $15 minimum wage because they thought it was too radical and would hurt Joe Biden's chances. When in fact, again, a $15 minimum wage won and Joe Biden lost. So if Black people were to say, here is an agenda of sorts that includes some of these big ticket items that most Americans agree with and want. And we will work for you. We will deliver these votes. We have demonstrated our capacity to do so, but only if, and we're willing to take that kind of a a boycott seriously, then I think that we could have an enormous amount of political power. And it doesn't have to be black people, obviously, right? It could be, you know, you just get the petitions of 20,000 people in a swing state like Ohio or Michigan or Pennsylvania that could have the same kind of leverage. But I think there's a lot of power in the fact that black people do vote as a block. And it's incumbent on us to decide whether or not we kind of have the the confidence and and on what we're demanding and the kind of, I think, feel like we're it's we're worth it. You know, the kind of um, you know, I think righteous understanding that we are owed some things in this country to actually make the the demand that I think that is warranted. Mm. I kind of feel like two things about that. One, it assumes that black people really do all agree on the thing that you would pick, which we know that often that becomes problematic when you assume that polls tell you what all black people believe in. And then you go, sometimes you trot it out and you find out that you have very mixed kind of reception to certain, certain policies, certain things. I've seen you on another show and, you know, defund the police came up and that's a good example, even here in the twin cities where the George Floyd thing took place. Um, not everybody was for defund the police. Right. And right. I wouldn't uh, like, suggest anything you know. like defund the police. Although I do think that, I'd love to have a broader conversation about defund the police, because if we had even half the conversations about what defund the police entails, as we do conversations about how the lo- the slogan is somehow off-putting, then the slogan might not be as off-putting to people because it started to pull increasingly well over the summer as the protest, the focus was on the protesters and the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And the polls have gotten worse as the conversation has shifted into this kind of poll testing, you know, what do the politicians think? What do the pundits on MSNBC um, think? As none of us here are, none of us here are politicians. Yeah. So none of us are, as far as I know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to speak out of I was going to say, I had been a politician once. I know what it's like. <laughs> but I will say this much. Let me say this much about that, though, because this is very important. Number one, um, it's not the MSNBC uh, pundits, actually, that you have to worry about. It's when white progressives on the ground actually know everything and they don't know that they're actually representing people sometimes against their will. So what you see in Minneapolis on the ground in Minneapolis, what you see is a rift between black organizers who organize for a living and have been organizing a lot and oftentimes get infiltrated by groups of people who aren't even from Minnesota. First of all, let's start there oftentimes come with some badge from some major progressive organization um, and they don't spend enough time just doing the finesse because they could win. Like you could be right or you can win. And a lot of times, you know, they spend a lot of time being right. And I'm not, listen, I'm just saying this just to say, these things can get complicated on the ground if if we just rush into them. I, the, the, what I was going to lead to to that was you have a certain set of of political ideas that could be tested with the public. So 
Bernie had this major following nationally and a wave like momentum. And as somebody who I always put this out here with this group of on this, these guys so that they, they can know my bona fides on this is, you know, I voted for um, uh, Ralph Nader and Winona LaDuke instead of Clinton and Lenora Fellaini and Ralph Nader instead of Clinton. So every argument you heard about Bernie, I caught hell for my two votes in those two elections in a way that you would only you probably could understand. Yeah. Honestly, now that I think about it, probably only you could understand. But if you think if Bernie, since he's an independent, took his platform this election to the Green Party and ran a third party and got 20 million votes, that 2024 would look very different for the Democrats? That's a good question. You know, I I, I don't. There's, there's obviously a lot of people on the left who would have loved for Bernie to have done that. Um, and that's you know not obviously his disposition. Uh, you know, I think he plays him, sees himself as playing a different kind of a role. Perhaps he feels like there's more value that he can um, add in the Senate. Um, you know, I understand the counter arguments and, you know, what what can we do? None of us are him and none of us can really know what's going on in, in his brain or, or judge what in the long term was the better outcome. I, I do think that there is a false narrative about third party candidates and the viability of third party candidates in this country um, where they're very roundly dismissed as just never possible. It's never worked and mm -hmm, it will never work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When the reality is that if a vision grows significant enough and the issue is important enough to people the way, I don't know, abolition was, <laughs> then what you get is our country's first third party candidate who was Abraham Lincoln, right? Who <laughs> the, Rep the Republican party was the, the third party. And he was being pressured by a lot of people to stop talking about abolition because it was too polarizing an issue. Um, and that's, that's how we got, got one of our most famous, our famous presidents. Right. So I'm not saying it, it, it well, I'll also say I, I'm not a historian, but my understanding is that the conditions that he derailed, you know, other third party efforts, particularly, um, uh, in the, when you're talking about Eugene Debs and some of these kind of like socialist efforts um, to rally the troops, um, there were other intervening political factors, uh, the Red Scare, international events that soured people on movements um, because mm -hmm. they succumbed to a certain kind of red baiting. Um, and then, you know, the Great Depression, we had, um, you know, FDR and we were, had someone who wasn't, didn't come from that tradition, but who was able to give voice to a lot of the ideas that were coming out of those movements. So there has been much more of an ebb and flow than is often characterized when we talk about third parties. And I think that there is real potential for third party movements in this country, but it's going to require everyone taking it seriously and, and to, to get us out of this collective action problem of, oh, we can never have a third party candidate because no one's going to vote for a third party. Well, if everyone who said that just voted for a third party, we'd be in a very different place. So I'm heartened by people who like the folks who are starting this um, People's Party Movement. I know that Senator Nina Turner has been, um, you know, talking with uh, P. Diddy and some others about this um, black. Uh, sorry, I forget the name of the project, but it's a, a black focused um, similar endeavor. I, I don't know much about the details about that one, but the the reality is, there's an enormous amount of power. There's an enormous amount of power to be had. We we can't both say, 
Biden wouldn't win without black women and black organizers and Roy Wood wouldn't have won Alabama. We can't say all of these things. And at the flip side say, oh, but don't try to get out of line because your vote doesn't actually matter and the Democratic Party will ignore you and power through without you. I think Mm -hmm. that's true. If we treat our votes as individual and we all just sit home and do like a protest vote or whatever, there's there are limitations to how much that can influence the party. But coming very specifically as a mass movement organized with a specific list of demands that to your point, yes, the community has to agree on. And I, and I think that there are things that I would like it to, to be in there, but aren't going to be in there because everyone doesn't agree. But I think that there is such overwhelming support for certain policies like marijuana legalization, bipartisan support for marijuana legalization, um, medical debt cancellation, student debt cancellation, um, universal health care. You know, if you just said universal health care, that's something that not only a majority of black people would support, but there would be a lot of support beyond our community because of the ways that everybody is struggling with it. And I think that our coalition would grow even faster than the 15, 12% or whatever that we have. Something to be conscious of though, is our power is dwindling as we no longer are the number, the largest ethnic group in the country. And what we see a lot of, I I often hear black people articulating frustration with how much Latinos are a part of the conversation about, you know, how do we meet their needs and this many voted for Trump and how do we give them what they want? And why are we talking so much about uh, immigration and not about reparations? I think there's a direct correlation between how Mm -hmm. much those Mm -hmm. issues get aired and how much that voting group isn't a block and how much those votes can be won back and forth in every election cycle. And instead of like looking down our nose and saying like, oh, black voters are better than Latino voters because we always vote Democrat. I would say, well, maybe black voters should think about why it is that we're not getting messaged to and courted to in that way. And that's not to say go vote for Trump, but it is to say, can we organize an advance of an election. So there's enough time to publicize it and get the facts straight. And it's not, it's not perceived as like holding the party hostage or people aren't vilified the way that I was for simply raising these questions too close to an election cycle. That's why I want to talk about it now. We've got four years to the next one of these things. What if right now black people make it very clear that we will only fall in line under certain conditions? One of those conditions being school choice. Education. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, school choice. Like, listen, if you don't have that condition, I don't care which party you are. I'm not with you. Like, listen, if if I want to be very clear. And, and Charles, you help me out because Charles is, is our Democrat on the show who has a longer, I think, track record with the Democratic Party. Sharif is an independent. I'm a libertarian and Ray is a, a Republican. So we should have probably like set a table for you about like the different you know, ways in which we come at this. But I think Sharif and I have the ability to shift from one to the one if we don't get what mm-hmm. we want type of thing. And if it wasn't for the, the GOP running a crazy person this time around, um, both Bernie and Biden's education policy would have pushed me a different direction because, you know, I'm, I'm sick of our kids getting 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 left behind in this the discussion and the debate. So they got us this time. Everybody told everybody vote like this is the last time you're ever going to be able to vote. <laughs> right. <laughs> like this is the last one. You never go, go, go vote again. Right. Not, um, and four years are going to come and say that again. But the difference is there won't be a madman on the ballot in four years from now. So I like what you're saying. So. As well, in, you know, if you don't run again, or that's, well, that's, that's not what I mean. There was so much focus on Donald Trump for being 
impolitic and rude and openly racist, people confuse that with him actually having being substantively worse than every Republican candidate that we've ever had. I'm sorry, Donald Trump, Donald Trump isn't the one who managed to undo welfare as we know it. That was Bill Clinton running on policies that Ronald Reagan couldn't even get past because when Reagan does it, it's a Republican and we all know that's bad. When Clinton did it, he was able to slide it under the radar because we're not critical enough of our own leaders, right? It wasn't, it wasn't Donald Trump who passed the 1994 crime bill, right? Donald Trump did a lot of terrible things, but we don't have to diminish the evils that the Republican Party has been trotting down the line for decades to acknowledge that D Donald Trump was unique in the way that he presented himself um, and the gall, the open, you know, the open gall with which he was able to um, articulate his agenda, right? He, he just took it from the world of dog whistling to a kind of explicit, um, you know, an explicit approach. But, you know, what we're going to arguably, I would say, see in four years is someone who has just as much xenophobia, anti-immigrant sentiment, um, disdain for the social welfare state, et cetera, as Donald Trump, but who was able to look polite and act like a normal politician and who wasn't going to have people protesting in the streets. And it's going to be someone like Tom Cotton, who just famously wrote an op-ed about how we needed to send the military to put down protesters, but who can put mm -hmm. on a suit and tie and look a lot more normal and not say the quiet part loud. And we're not going to get the same kind of pushback that Donald Trump experienced. And he may or may not be able to accomplish a lot more evil. Ray, you better bounce out of that party, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you better stop Tom it, Ray. Tom Cotton, <laughs> Tom, Tom, Tom Cotton doesn't have a, he doesn't have a shot in hell. You better look at Mitt Romney. Well, that, um, so, but I want to ask you, I want to, I want to, I want to sit here for a second. You talked about the 94 crime bill, right? Bernie voted for the 94 crime bill. And oh. there was a lot of black people in, uh, in, in legislation that voted for this 94 crime bill too. So yeah. we can't just give Joe all the credit for that. No, certainly not. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. So I don't know if you watched any of the, um, Senate hearing testimony, uh, congressional hearing testimony around the time of the mm -hmm. crime bill. Mm -hmm. Um, but what is very clear is where everybody stood on it if you listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth. And what Joe Biden did, and we covered this on a recent episode of the podcast because you never saw this footage on cable news, uh, was he stood there and he said, I don't care what caused the problem. I don't care why people commit crimes. All I know is that if someone comes and wants to beat up my grandmother, steal my wife's purse, hurt my children, they need to be, we need to lock them up and throw away the key. That's not an exact quote. That's mm -hmm. a very close quote. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, meanwhile, Bernie Sanders gave a five minute lengthy speech on the floor of the house saying he doesn't like the bill. He didn't want to vote the, for the bill because it was draconian because it did the thing that threw it locked up and locked people up and threw them away the key without assessing why people are committing crimes without addressing the underlying poverty, the underlying lack of education, all of the systemic factors. And at the end of the day said, I have to vote for this thing because you guys tagged it to a bunch of other bills, including the Violence Against Women, Women's Act. And 10 years from now, you're either going to be mad at me and call me a, sex, a sexist for not voting for the Violence Against Women Act. You're going to be telling me I'm a racist for not for voting for the crime bill. And Joe Biden and politicians do this kind of thing intentionally every single day of the week. Now, that doesn't give Bernie a, a total pass. He could stand on his laurels and not do that. And obviously we all in retrospect would have preferred that he had done that. But to your point, there was an enormous amount of pressure. Two thirds of the Congressional Black Caucus voted for this thing 
And it was horrible. My mother remembers, she tells me at the time, yeah, all those people led us astray then. All the, all of the progressive black people back then knew that it was wrong and it was bad. And this revisionist history that says that people didn't know it was wrong is exactly that, revisionist history. And yeah, what's so it, frustrating is popular that- Popular though, Brianna, it was popular. That, that's one of the things, like you just said, Medicare is popular and these other bills are popular. This was popular at the time with black folks and others. So if we can say today, like, listen, the majority of people support Medicare for all, so we should have Medicare for all. The majority of people back then were in the middle of this crack frenzy. And just like you, you just, what you just said is actually spot on too. People should go back and watch that tape. There was so much of the super predator talk then back then about if somebody breaks in and, and rapes, I mean, like we had went through a, a Willie Horton ad season. We had went through where that was like yeah. a very popular way of talking about the issues. Yeah. And everybody was scared from black pastors and black mayors and black, you know, city council members. Um, and they did just what you just said. They, they fell in line. They fell for the moment. But see, this is the thing that people do with their candidates. This is why I like to move from candidate to candidate. Yeah. If your candidate is Bernie, you will find a way for Bernie to be okay. And if your candidate is Biden, you will find no, a way for Biden to be right. okay. And that's not fair. I voted for the best candidate. Wait, I supported the best candidate in the election cycle. I'm not married to every decision they make. They made in their 40 year career. And I stood. I sat here. What did I just say to you? I just said to you, I would prefer if Bernie had made a different choice. I'm not covering right. for him. I don't work for him. I don't have to pretend that everything that he's done in his career is good or ideal. But what I'm not going to do is pretend that the man who wrote the crime bill, the man who, it's called the Joe Biden crime bill. Okay? No. I'm not going to pretend the man who put all of that stuff in there yeah. because he sincerely and genuinely believed that Black youth were super predators who deserved to be in jail, regardless of what led them to do what they did. Uh, is the same as a man who did so under a political duress. And maybe I wish he had stood up more. And maybe I, I don't fully understand the circumstances of the time. But those are not the same things. And what's the important distinction between mm -hmm. that and Medicare for all right now is that there was a moment where people wanted a solution. And a solution that could have been offered back then to the crime pan epidemic or whatever they what you want to call it. There were solutions that could have been offered that didn't come at the expense of an entire community of people multiple communities of people, because let's not forget the Latinos and also yeah. uh, uh, Native Americans were in, impacted uh, disproportionately as well. I mean, you there's know, a lot. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. The fact that people were desperate for a solution and were being misled by their leadership class in much the same way that our leadership class, those same people who are now in their 70s and 80s, are misleading, continue to mislead Black people today, that is not the same thing as saying that that was the right thing to do then. And mm -hmm. if today Medicare for all was being championed by folks, uh, you know, because, you know, look, here's, here's how I'll put it. There are, there are things that people champion because they think that they can win the same way. A lot of black voters said, okay, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Cause I think he's the most electable. I respect that choice. Even if I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to pretend that they voted for Joe Biden because they love Joe Biden because every bit of anecdotal and poll tested evidence that we have is to the contrary. Who I do blame, not individual black voters, but who I do blame is establishment figures like, I'm sorry, Jim Clyburn. Don't come Ooh. for Jim Clyburn. No, this is not the show for that. No. This is no. not. Let's hear it, Brianna. Let's hear it, Brianna. Don't come the for the kids. Is, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so the reality is that we have. <laughs> yeah, give us some reality. <laughs> the reality we have these political figures who have done so much historically for the community. That is a very sensitive issue to leverage any criticism at them. And I want to be respectful of all of the folks who have been looking up to these figures and who these figures have genuinely gone to bat for and helped over the many decades of their career. That can't be put aside. That that shouldn't, we should never be, be, behave with disrespect toward these icons. I don't think it's right. And I don't think it's like politically savvy to do so. But I also don't think it's right when all of these Black Southern states have worse health outcomes than anywhere else in the world, right? And the minimum wage is crap. They don't have Medicaid expansion. They are, people are, are, our communities are dying of preventable illnesses. Our, our men are only living like 65 years old. It's a disaster. And Jim Clyburn, I think, not because of necessarily any animus in his heart, but the reality is that he has taken more money from the pharmaceutical industry than anybody else in Congress. Anybody else in Congress. And if you're not going to acknowledge that there's a relationship between that fact and the way that he votes on issues and backs candidates, I think that that's a disconnect that is leading our communities astray and directly leading to the, the death and suffering of too many people who look like me. Should it be a well, term you, limit? You just lost the South. There you go. You lost the Black South. That's how South Carolina was lost right there. <laughs> right there. That's it. How's that? Um, well, I mean, I just like, listen, there's there's a couple of things and I'm not a Democrat, so th- I'm talking a little bit out of turn, but I'll just say this. There, there's a there's an age civil war thing, I think, happening right now where um, where where some of this could just be taken as truth and some of it could be taken as disrespect. And the mix between those two things is what's called politics. And 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 when I look at like there are people who vote Democrat, not because it's the lesser of two evils, because they actually do believe in the agenda that is being put forth. And I believe that there are people who are black who don't think that Medicare for all is the savior and salvation to the healthcare system for legitimate reasons of their own. And I do believe that there are people that let, let astray, but it's a mix. So I think when we get to painting with broad brushes, I don't sometimes think I a broad brush. I'm not saying you do, but I'm just saying in general. He's saying in general. Um, yeah, in general, these discussions lend themselves to broad brushes where there will be people that you respect a lot who will get brushed as being corrupt while there are people who you don't, who well, you barely know and have a thing. So. I'm talking about Jim Clyburn, who OpenSecrets.com can tell you all of his donations. It's a public record, just like everybody who every member of Congress. And the fact about Jim Clyburn, which has, has gone largely unacknowledged. Let me let me ask you all of this. Do you think it's a problem? That Jim, well, first let me say this. I think that there's a reason why a lot of Black politicians tend to feel more pressure to take corporate money than others. And that's because we do tend to come from lower income districts. We, there's been all this redistricting. We come from predominantly Black districts. That's how we get elected, how they get elected. And they have a harder time meeting the fundraising requirements of Congress members, which are extreme, right? They're under enormous amount of pressure to raise money for the party. Um, and they have very little time to do anything else. It's part of why you're able to see AOC go and have these great speeches and moments in the House floor and be so active is because she's one of the few that doesn't have trouble raising money. So she can spend her time not calling donors, but thinking about policy and, and how to make an impact. So black politicians are under more pressure. It's harder for us yeah. to earn money. We can't call daddy or whomever to come and fund our campaigns. But that is not an excuse, in my opinion, 
that does not absolve you from the consequences of taking money that prevents you from acting on behalf of your constituents. So my question to you is, do you think it's a concern? Does that give you pause that someone like Clyburn has taken, again, more pharmaceutical money than anybody else in Congress, in Congress? Listen, hey, so I'll listen, answer this way. Child. We got a Democrat on the panel. Okay, go to Charles. So, yeah, go to Charles. I mean, this is a, a, a political conversation. I mean, here, I, I, you can, if you want to eat up Clyburn, eat him up. I mean, we don't have to like get it. Like, I think, I think, I don't think any, I don't think anybody's beyond reproach. And I think everybody got some questionable stuff. There's stuff I appreciate about that brother and his history. And there's stuff that I don't really vibe with. And I hear what you're saying, but I also can do that with Bernie and I can do that with everybody. But my, my, sure. my question is just more about, you know, I, cause you said something about third parties and fringe. I actually think that the French has way more par- power in these in these parties than they've ever had. So you got the Tea Party that has actually been wagging the dog on the Republican side for a long time. And Democrats yeah. and independents were saying, hey, get your house in order. And then we also have our own type of crews. And Brianna, you lead a very powerful platform. AOC is part of a very powerful platform. Bernie is a part of a platform. And Bernie er, and, and you, I mean, AOC is a Democrat now, but. You and Bernie are not even Democrats, right? So now there's other people that's like, hey, how are you going to get your party in order? My thing is this, and here's my question for you, lied in with that comment. I, I actually think we need a coalition, a French coalition that is able to float around and go where it needs to go. So if we start the Gray Coal Chronicles, where I was just focused on better ed policy and getting out our way where we don't prioritize white women in these in these places that get to kill the brains of black kids with no consequence. You know what I'm saying? And to say that we love labor or whatever the case is, but we actually put black parents first and your thing around let's defund the police and let's go out and do a real campaign around it. And like, let me educate you on what this means, because I spend more time actually explaining what it means and actually having real conversations with people about it. And And to Chris's point, I don't want this to be lost. It was mostly black people when they wasn't on camera, when they wasn't around people. That was the main people saying they wasn't with the defund the police thing. And then we had to have a conversation. So for this, for our little gray cold chronicles, uh, Miss Brianna, how, how would we how do we move forward so we can get those two issues that we want, whether you a Democrat, a Republican, independent, fringe or whatever the case is. I mean, because you have an amazing platform that's only going to get bigger. And I respect what you built. And I really want your expertise on this. I wasn't trying to skirt the Democrat thing. I'm just not interested. The political conversation is I think there's a different, you know, CNN, you do that or your your podcast. But if we I want to plan for how we can get black people educated in what they need. Well, I wouldn't hold my breath for CNN to do. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, well, you're, you're a platform. I'll watch your show for that. And Zakia, Zakia got that too. But I'll watch your show for that. But, but me and you, how are we going to do this with our two issues? Whatever else you think about, whatever is fine. I just need you to be cool on these two issues. And then our vote is for sale, baby. Let's go. Well, I, I guess I think that one of the biggest obstacles, like the, the Black people threatened to dim exit plan, right? The, the the idea that we're going to be a voting block that not has the to black be earned. people, but I got you. That was Candace. But <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was just saying what I was saying earlier. Like, if got you, got you. Our twelve percent or whatever we are now, we're willing to defect. Let's just. I was just calling up the, the black Demexit plan. If that were that, that is never going to work. If there are people like Clyburn, sheep 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 herding people back to the party. Like, I don't, I don't think that you can. Um, Get where you need to go, unless you just wait, you know, a couple generations for a bunch of people to die off. But I think our concerns are too exigent. We can't, 
we can't wait around for that. I'm not willing to keep sacrificing entire generations of people, entire generations of kids, to your point, because the Democratic Party just keeps kicking the can down the road or because we have to wait for people to die off. Like, I think the reality is that we might have had a very different outcome to this election if the establishment members of the Democratic Party, and this is not voters again, this is Democratic Party leadership, hadn't so clearly been in the tank <laughs> for and Ms. Gray, can candidates. I can I push can I just can I push a little bit because I know we low on time and I again I don't want to take these people. I know what happened, right? Like I'm talking about the agency that you and I got. I'm talking about me and you platforms yeah. where and as a Democrat who actually helped build up a lot of that stuff in California around youth and, and a long time ago. I'm saying like look I would say to the Dems, respectfully, these are the two issues that I'm rocking with. This is what uh, Miss Joy uh, Gray is rocking with. This is what we're doing. And you won't you had us this time, but you won't have us next time if we don't get this. I'm asking you what what would be our plan to actually start to start that conversation and get that out? I'm not saying blow up the Democratic Party or the or the Republican. Party. I'm saying that the party is that that is what it is. I'm saying our campaign to get this thing done, maybe even as a proposition. But I'm just I'm, I'm asking you. I don't, I don't want to go back to who runs it now. I'm trying to see where our power lies and what we can do moving forward. Well, my point you is I think I, that part of what we have to do with our platforms is is not is, is to push back against people who have represented themselves as, as leading Black people and, and offering good advice to Black people when they've been offering terrible advice for decades. And I think that part of what we can do is to start to shine light on the reasons, the underpinning reasons why folks like Clyburn, not because he's a bad person or anything, but why his his um, allegiances are divided between how to fund his next campaign and what to do best for his constituents. I think that's a big part of it. Talking about corruption in Washington, talking about the, in the what is fueling the enormous income divide. Why don't more black people, why aren't we talking about a wealth tax? Why aren't we talking about, when we have this enormous racial disparity and most of the wealth is held by point well, one percent of people who are all white, right? Like, why aren't we? Why isn't that not perceived to be a, an issue that's closer to our interests as a community? Why, you know, why aren't we talking about the fact that why do we have to fight tooth and nail to get a fifteen dollar minimum wage uh, on the platform? It's only there because of Bernie in twenty sixteen fighting for it in the Unity Commission back then. Hillary Clinton acted like it was pulling teeth to get her to offer that when the real minimum wage really should be $22 an hour or something like that if it was in- adjusted for inflation, right? And a minimum wage increase. But, but you and I have those conversations. We we, we right. land our platform. So, and I, and again, I know Ray got to take over the show so we can like move on. No, but, but, I, and, but, I, and I love to have a follow-up conversation around it too. I just wanted to, because what hey, I wanted hey, to do was- Hey, I, Ray yeah, is in no anyway, rush. Let her rock. Yeah, let her finish her, her, her statement. Her right. my, my, so. my point is that those issues aren't framed as black issues. What black people get when people like, I don't mean to make it all about Clyburn, he's just a stand in for the you know kind of black establishment elite. But what they get, Clyburn comes to them and say, I know Joe. He didn't say vote for Joe because he's going to change your lives in these ways. His pitch was literally, I know Joe. And to push back against that at all, you were, you were characterized as racist and anti-black. You know, right? That is a huge problem for our community. This kind of grouping that Joe Biden got away with sitting there on national TV and saying, if you're not already planning to vote for me, you ain't black. You ain't black. 
And we all just thought, we're like, okay. No, that's not what he said. He said, if you don't know the difference between me and Donald Trump, no, you ain't black. That is what he said. That's what he said. You don't know the difference between me and Donald Trump. And listen, no, that's not we what get caught up. We I, get I, caught I up in those things. The, the <laughs> question was about people who hadn't already decided, made up their mind about the vote. This was like in the spring, yeah. it was like summer. The question was, what do you say, some of the lines, what do you say to people who haven't already decided who to vote for? And then the response this is my problem. This is my problem, Brianna. My class. problem with all of these candidates. So you just gave you gave the business to Clyburn. Cool. Um, and I think we should give the business to every candidate. You know, you get a business to every candidate. You're very much aligned with a, a way of thinking and you think it's right. But it doesn't mean that everybody agrees on the minimum wage needs to be $20 an hour. It doesn't mean that everybody's anti-business. It doesn't mean that all black people believe that, you know, that the wealth tax is actually all that it's cracked up to be. These are things that still have to be discussed and hammered out in a thorough way with people so that we don't assume right. that people There's disagree with this. People ask me but, what I would platform. And what my answer to you is that I think mm-hmm. it's my job and maybe your job as well, Cole, if that's what you're interested in, to start elevating these issues and bringing issues to black people because black people don't get issues. What black people are brought to by our leadership is fall in line with Democrats. If you don't, you ain't black. I know. What did Bernie bring though? What did Bernie bring? He brought a whole lot of post-racial economic stuff that people weren't rocking with for very much for, listen, there were people within the campaign who were saying that he had a problem with the with understanding the black situation, right? Are, there are people you're, the, you're asking but, from a policy perspective what Bernie offered to black people? No, that's not what I'm asking because I know how you'll answer that question because that's the way that you would win that conversation. But see that that well, didn't win. Well, no, no, no. Listen, listen, listen. You said you knew Let's talk about why Bernie didn't win. Well, 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 I, let, wait, 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 let me We just had a whole point. conversation about well, Bernie Sanders and this election. Yeah, but let me finish I, my I point. Let me finish my point. I want to say, I'm not let Bernie. Me, let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. I don't work for Bernie. I'm not Bernie's representative. You talk about pulling up Clyburn and looking at Clyburn's things that you said that are in open secrets, like where his money comes from. I find that concerning. Why? You say that, like, I'm with you. I'm like... Well, that is now you make me want to go out and look at what his record is is on voting on prescription drugs, for instance. Right. So now you've now you've piqued my interest. Yeah. But what 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 we will never talk about in these discussions, because they're usually one sided, is what I will do when I look up a candidate where all his money comes from big labor and where he was aligned with big labor for all the years. And I know the amount of racism in big labor, especially in education, but also in other areas. And when you put yourself on autopilot, we're letting that group of people, because let's, let's be real. Once you get to that level of $500 million and the big labor, uh, big white labor is sitting at the table with billionaires too. And if you need me to unpack it for you, I can. But there's this thing called the Democracy Alliance and they have a ton of money and they are plutocrats like anybody else. And they're playing. So when I see candidate A get that money and then I get C, candidate C get this other money, I'm thinking that all of it's money behind them. So we have to be savvy customers, right? Right. Of all so of I, these folks. I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know what that has to do with me or frankly the candidate that I, Represented, given Bernie's the a lot of, historical nature of big labor. No, Bernie could Bernie could take no no donation of, over like five hundred dollars and would have still out fundraised everybody in the Democratic primary. Bernie overwhelmingly got small dollar donations. The average size of his donation was eighteen dollars. So that wasn't there, there. No one can claim to have influenced Bernie's agenda um, by 
funding Bernie's campaign. That was the whole point of why Bernie sounded so different than anybody else had ever been on the political sphere. And I think if that conversation had been had more, especially on the mainstream outlets, then we would have been able to see a really big difference. Between, you know, the voters would have understood what an enormous, unprecedented historical opportunity it was to vote for Bernie Sanders. And now we have, you know, Joe, Joe Biden and Wine Cave Pete, who's probably going to take over in the next election cycle. And it's a real problem for our democracy. If we want to talk about dem- our democracy being in danger with Donald Trump and everything, campaign finance reform is at the root of it. I always say, if I was going to pick one reason to vote for a candidate, I didn't know anything about them. I wouldn't say race. I wouldn't say gender. I wouldn't say any other factor about them. I would say, tell me who funds them. Cause mm-hmm. that, that is who, that's who they're going to be working for. Mm-hmm. What, if it's, big labor? what if it's big labor? Bernie was funded by the people. Now I don't know. Oh, he's taken money from big labor for years. Thirty years. He's taken money from big labor for years. So what, what, what if that was the big money outlet? Okay. What would you think the influence would do then? Let's talk about labor. Okay. Labor is an, an an extremely big term to cover an enormous number of people. But basically the idea is that folks in the workforce, which is the where we spend most of our time, organize themselves into unions to make sure that they their voices are heard over management. So they can't be roundly exploited. Because of labor, we have a eight-hour workday, a five-hour work week. Children don't climb down in, in, in mines or whatever in this country. And at the height of labor participation in America in the 1970s, before Republicans understanding the enormous liberatory power of labor, started chipping away at our labor laws that were given to us through the Green New Deal, uh, sorry, the, the, the New Deal reforms um, under FDR, the gap between uh, the racial wealth gap between white men and black men who participated in unions actually closed to approximately zero. That was the only time in American history. And it was only for people who were in unions, right? But there was a lot of labor history about the racism in unions, and that is absolutely true. It's legitimate and it's true. My grandfather was a plumber in Newport, Newport News, in Newfork, uh, Newport News, Virginia, uh, who worked in the Navy Yards. It was not allowed to join the white plumbers union. And I've heard all the stories my entire life. And that is a legitimate history that should absolutely not be erased. But understanding and acknowledging the history of racism in this country should never be used as a way to undermine the very institutions that can start to bring us closer to equity. And the question should be, how do we root racism out of unions, not how do we vilify Labor. If there is a problem, with it's not vilifying. Unions, what? How do you tell the truth about the people you stand with? Tell the truth about the people you stand with. Talk about and work through problems with teachers unions. We My, talked. We've talked, talked with them for decades. We've talked with them for decades. I didn't come here and say I want to attack charter schools. Charter schools are wrong. I appreciate why people want charter schools. I appreciate why people are frustrated. At, at what charter schools and the converse and the politicization around charter schools does to the conversation about funding non-charter public schools, mm-hmm. right? And I think that we should be able to have a conversation about that without getting into our silos. And what disturbs me is that I think that sometimes I'm not talking about anybody on this panel, but people get a little bit of information about, okay, there was racism here and racism there. And we, when you only look through one lens, you miss the forest for the trees sometimes. And I would love us if we had a union participation rate in the thirties and forties, instead of in the 
sub 10% the way we have right now, we would have a lot more racial equality in this country. And but, part, your- but, part, but, but they pushed a lot of black folks out. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not here to vilify, I'm not here to vilify you. Structurally unions, racist. But if, but, but if we're going to talk about structural racism, yeah. all these systems, whether it's big pharma all the way down to unions that systemically left black men out of that stuff, that it, like, I mean, we can go there. I, all no, I, but let's one, go there. And, no, no, no. Well, I, I just wanted to talk about education, but I got to run in a second. But okay, I, I want to, but, but but I didn't want to get off. I didn't want to get off without at least saying bye and thank you. I super appreciate getting a chance oh, to hey, meet put you. This in your I would love. Thought. I mean, is it right? Is this all right? Just my closing thought. Then, um, I well, I, I love, I love uh, the platform that Miss Gray has built. I love that she came and spoke, and I love that we have some active debate and we don't hate each other. And I think that this is where we need to get as a country. We need to get to a place where people can actually have an exchange of ideas that differ without calling somebody else the devil or whatever and being able to move forward. I actually would be interested in having more conversations and actually figuring out the best way to kind of get all these things addressed in a new kind of way that doesn't alienate folks uh, and kind of can let people feel like they come together. So thank you all for the conversation. I really I really wish we could have like dove into the education piece of it more because for so long since desegregation, since the, we killed the black teacher, since we gave these people just the freedom to ruin black minds and any time and, and just be let's be very clear for the people. School choice is not just charter schools. It is being able to hold those people accountable that have your babies, whether you want to go to a traditional school, because I only went to traditional schools and my mom tried to get me in a different one. But she would have went to jail if she got caught using the wrong address um, or magnet schools that will just straight up just uh, like say you can't go there but they never catch heat from the union side or whatever. Right. So I just thank y'all, y'all and everybody that had this great conversation mm-hmm. and Ms. Gray, you are always welcome. And hopefully you'll extend that uh, invitation to us. She was in that invitation though. She was like, <laughs> it was nice meeting you. Never talking to y'all again. <laughs> hey, no, I, hey, I really enjoyed you. It's all good. No, thank um, you all. Oh, for me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I just, I guess the only thing I I have left to say is to wrap up that point about um, the reason they, that unions, of course, have had a lot of racism, as I acknowledged, but they came under attack hard from Republicans because Republicans understood that they were becoming increasingly integrated in the years after the civil rights movement. Finally, black people were able to start to get a piece of what unions had been able to deliver for white people for generations. And at that moment, when black people were finally being able to profit and benefit, they cut it off and union participation nosedived through the 80s under those Republican administration. So I uh, entirely agree that there is a lot of history of racism and that and that persist in some forms in contemporary unions. But I think the answer is like all other racist systems that we live in, every system that we have, it's not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but to talk about how to reform it and make it more equitable, especially given the enormous benefits that it stands to offer for for Black people in particular. That's what's up. Thank you. Uh, Reef. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks again for for joining us and, and, and you know, sh- sharing your you know, perspective and ideas and, and your work. You know, grateful to, ha- to have you on. Um, and I, I think my two pieces is one. I, I hope all of our audience members, not just them, like have circle. Everybody's talking about book clubs and, and you know, walks in the park, all that kind of stuff. Study, study the ballot or the bullet, like study it, study it with your friends, have circles around it. I think this idea of like, what do we do with our vote? 
are we going to be political chumps or not? Like it's so, uh, you know, germane to the conversation and it will be not only today, but two years from now in the midterm, as well as, uh, you know, four years from now. And then the other piece is we have to demand that politicians uh, elevate the conversations about education. Like it gets mm-hmm. lost every time, they, you know, you hear people talking about education. It's about unions. That's not education. The learning is with students or the the not learning or the the, the dislearning. That's that's not talked about. And that's what I think we have to hold people accountable. That for me would be like a third party. We say like, hey, you know what? We're the party of the children. (laughs) You know, we are the party of education of their children because everybody stop singing the song, uh, you know, or talking about the children are of our future. If you're never, ever talking about them, if you're never, ever thinking about them. And, you know, that that to me says everything. And I've always said America is not a child friendly place. And you see it at the in the highest offices. Mm. Breezy. Um, well, Brianna, thank you for coming here for this. Um, and, and, uh, I love, I love the energy that you are bringing to something new and something different because what we've had is old and tired and it is time to actually really start thinking through ideas. Like where can we go from here? I'm one of those people as a lifelong kind of third party voter. I'm one of those people who has always heard the arguments it's wasting your vote or um, you're wasting your effort. um, I'm also kind of, I think a black belt in the language around the duopoly and Tweedledee and Tweedledum and all that stuff. Cause all throughout the nineties, when, when the Clintons were running, that's exactly what we were. That's what we were saying, actually, like to people in the 90s. And we were having these type of arguments. And, and in the black community, that commu- that conversation didn't really take off back then. It was all Clinton. And, you know, you were either, you know, the, 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 the 2000 election proved everything you just heard in this last election. If you didn't vote for Clinton in 2000, you were ending the world and everything was going to end. I'm old enough now to know the world didn't end. I voted for Ralph Nader and Winona LaDuke, who I had passion for as a candidate. I still think that that's a viable play. I think Bernie, for instance, and I know you're not, you know, we're not pigeonholing you with him. I'm only saying this now in retrospect, that if he would have taken 20 million votes off the table as in a third party run, I think 2024 could have been our year as third party people. We could have been like, now see what can happen. That can happen. That can happen again. Because what we didn't have in the 90s, we didn't have a candidate that could have gotten 20 million votes and really kind of taken the thing and, and ran that far with it. In this last election, we could have had had that. We could have conceivably had a large enough chunk to make people crippled uh, in the in the duopoly. Um, So I do want to say that this thing about labor unions is one of the things I think we will have to talk about if we want to have a fair bringing together of black people, because my grandfather and others, just like you mentioned, your father and others or grandfather and others, it isn't just that they had a little racism. They were structurally racist. And the NAACP had a person named Herbert Hill who spent his entire life documenting all of the labor racism that was taking place as they were arguing for things like seniority as a protection for white workers that actually made a permanent class underclass of all the people of color that came into the unions. So it's not true that we ever caught up. Actually, the AFT still has never had a black president. We've had a black president of the free world. We have not had a black president of the AFT yet. Um, A lot of the, the, we lost a lot of our black teachers. We lost, you know. Well, I mean, listen, it would still, no matter what. I'm not making an argument. I just, no, no, the conversation would be had. It would be worth having though. 
I mean, honestly, if we're going to tell the truth about the capitalists and we're going to tell the truth about the neoliberals, we have to tell the because people are going to come and ask for our vote. And we yeah. just should be honest about every single one of them, the neoliberals, the capitalists, the pro-business people, the corporate lobby and the labor folks. Like we're going to have to have a demand of all of them equally. Um, yeah, I don't and have an issue with that. Just the whole truth, though, because I think that it's like, you know, everyone likes to say the New Deal was racist and it's true. And it's also true that a million black people were taught how to read. And, you know, we all got social security, not all of us, but some of us, no, got I was about to say. you know, like we can, we can talk about both things at once, but yeah, what yeah. makes me very disturbed is a, a large number of black people, especially in 2016 saying Bernie Sanders is going to hurt me because he wants a green new deal style program. Like, and I'm going to pick the, the super predator woman instead, like a little bit of information can be dangerous. And the, the question yeah. would be, how do we make this imperfect, but good program better? Not how do we vilify it so in a way that can keep people locked into a status quo that hurts them more? Well, talking about it isn't vilifying it. Let's just be clear about that for one. It's well, not it vilifying it to talk about half truth. I'm just saying, tell the whole yeah. truth, the good and the bad and the ugly. That's all I'm well, saying. And we'll have to do that. So when, when people talk about the neoliberals, they will vilify everything about them and they won't tell the, the good the good in what or in their pro, their programs because they don't think there is any. So those people will say, well, don't vilify me for being pro-business. <laughs> I think that getting like, rid of welfare, you know, you know? the welfare state is a pretty unequivocal, unnuanced, bad thing that Bill Clinton did. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking That is literally the neoliberal agenda. He is the consummate neoliberal true. candidate. I was working in TANF at the time, so I can tell you that would be a good thing to unpack with people. Rather than saying that, which is actually not the way that it would be rolled out if you went through the program and looked at all of the pieces of the program, you'd be very specific at how a candidate like Bernie or others could really put TANF back on the on the um, back in play in a way that we could all get around. Anyways, my point is just saying it would be smart for anyone who comes to get our vote, anyone, whether they're coming from big labor or big business or wherever. Um, to have a fair reading of their racial history, because we're not living in a post post racial economic world. We're we're living in a still racial world. Most definitely. All right, cool. All right, so 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 closing us out, I want to say a couple things. First thing is Jim Clyburn <laughs> saved America. That's the first thing. The second thing Whatever. is uh, we, we we had an emergency show on Friday uh, when uh, Diane Ravage, I'm going to say her name. I'll get the cease and desist later this week in my email. It's fine. <laughs> um, she came after one of our own. She came after a black woman that's more credentialed than her. And that is uh, it, it would be a spectacular secretary of education, uh, uh, Dr. Sonia Sangeles uh, down in Baltimore City Public Schools. And so uh when you come for our people, we're going to come for you. I'm coming for you. I don't give a shit about Caesar desist until I get it, right? But when you come for our people, especially black women, I'm standing up with black women. So you see me right now. I stand with Sonia. All right. So thank you guys for uh, for coming to kick it with us. Thank you, uh, Ms. Joy Gray, for coming and hanging out with the crew. Uh, we appreciate you. And uh, we'll check you out next week. Peace. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.